Hello, I am Oliver Tonby, Chairman of McKinsey in Asia. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. Asia is the world's largest regional economy. It is at the center of the technology revolution. It is at the center of consumption growth, consumers of the future. It is at the center of climate risk and what we need to do to mitigate. As our economies evolve further, Asia has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses everywhere. Welcome. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast. My name is Joydeep Singupta and I lead knowledge for our McKinsey's global banking practice. In this podcast, we are going to focus on how the Asia's banking sector is faring through the pandemic. We're going to discuss the resilience of the region's banks over the past year and the challenges that lie moving forward. Clearly, as we entered the unfortunate COVID crisis, banks were quite well prepared in terms of their balance sheets being far more resilient than perhaps they were during the crisis of 2008. Having said that, all of us are aware that banking fortunes are quite tightly linked to the fortunes of economies. And the outlook in many of our markets still remains quite worrisome, with trillions of dollars of GDP uh, still under threat. And the near-term recovery of the economy quite patchy and uncertain in many of our markets. So the real question uh, which we would love to discuss today is, A, how has the banking sector dealt with this crisis? What is it that puts some banks ahead? How should they think about recovery and growth? And what are some of the big discontinuities and shifts that we are seeing in the financial sector today? A part of the crisis has accelerated many existing trends. We've also seen some new trends which have emerged as a consequence of this, and we'd love to have a discussion around that. So joining me to tackle these themes are three very senior journalists who day in and day out keep a close eye on the financial sector in the region. Our guests are Ira Dugal, banking and finance editor at Bloomberg Quint, based in India, Jamie Lee, deputy editor at Business Times Singapore, and Chris Wright, Asia editor of Euroman. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, and a warm welcome to you. Let me start with ERA, and let me start with really the big question, right, which is we are now more than a year into the pandemic. How do you think that banks are doing navigating this crisis? Okay, uh, Joydi, thanks for having me on this podcast. So I think it's a rare time, at least in India, when you can say, hey, uh, these banks did better than expected. Uh, But at this point in time, that's what we're saying. The banks seem to have done better than expected. We've had a decade or so of great turbulence in the Indian banking sector. So naturally, there was enormous trepidation of how another downturn in the economy would impact banks. There are two parts to the answer. The first part is on the surface, on the reported numbers right now, things are looking far better than anticipated. The gross uh, bad loans are at about 7%, far below what the regulator had predicted or, you know, a forecast saying that it could rise as far as 13%. So we are not at the peaks anywhere close. There are a couple of underlying issues which could start to come up. So we are holding back on the, hey, we won this battle story. And, you know, one of that is hidden bad loans because of a peculiar 
court order which will come up in the next quarter or so. So that could add another percent, percent and a half to bad loans. But as things stand right now, it certainly looks like the large corporate delinquencies which could have been feared have not come through. The small business delinquencies have been prevented or pushed back by government support. And the retail delinquencies, while large in number, are not very large in value. So banks are perhaps a little bit well-placed to deal with that. Uh, So I I won't go on for uh, minutes and minutes on end, but I'll just say that things are looking better than they were expected to. And that's a rarity for the Indian banking sector to be able to say that. No, thank you, Ira. The only thing which frankly worries me is now the second wave and the implications of that. And I guess we'll come back to that in a moment. But let me uh, move to uh, Jamie. Jamie, what are you seeing in the region? So over in Singapore, we're seeing a similar trend, which is that the Singapore banks are doing much better than they themselves anticipated. So if you look at the credit cost estimates that they had put out a year ago in the last results briefing, they're all rolling that back. And they're saying it's going to be at the midpoint of that. So I do think the Singapore banks seem more prepared and are ready for any bad loans that may come. I think some of the loans and uh, some of the moratoriums that have come through have certainly postponed some of that pain. But at the same time, the Singapore banks are also ready for that, um, which is why we've seen those buffers put in. Another thing, interesting thing about the moratoriums is that for some of them taking a mortgage uh, debt holiday, um, a portion of that money actually went towards the markets. So you've seen some arbitrage happening there um, and the markets have been doing very well. Some of the business owners also took the opportunity to pay down some of their more expensive loans with the debt, debt holiday that was provided to them. So you see some arbitrage happening there as well. Um, we can take a dip, deeper conversation on whether that is right or wrong. Um, but I think ultimately that gives you a sense that some people were not as disadvantaged as what moratoriums may seem on the surface of it. I also think that the Singapore banks will continue to benefit from the wealth management growth that we'll see here from Asia. Um, Singapore continues to be a strong financial hub, and I think that will continue to capture some of that flows. I think also with the trade tensions that have come up, one thing that has stood out is that ASEAN will continue to be this marketplace for the region. Um, Tapping that market has been successful to varying degrees, but I, but I think that the trade tensions now bring it to a stronger focus, and I think that will put the Singapore banks in a good state. No, thank you, Jamie. I guess somewhat like India, I think a little bit different, but clearly for Singapore banks, most banks are regional in nature, and you are living in an uneven neighborhood in many ways, right? So I think some of that will potentially play out as well this year as we look at the impact of the health crisis being different across markets. But let me switch to Chris. Chris, you've got a real vantage across Asia. How do you look at what banks are doing? How are they faring given the crisis? Well, thank you, Jody. Very good to be here today. And thank you for having me. Like Ira and Jamie, I've been pleasantly surprised so far by what we've seen about bank readiness and resilience for COVID. And I think really you can trace it back probably more than 20 years to the Asian financial crisis, you are just seeing a far stronger, more resilient, better provisioned industry that we used to have. And it's been built out of previous pain points where banks have learned lessons and just got smarter, got better. They haven't put their head in the sand. They've provisioned properly and they've been pretty well placed for what has come their way. Even with that being said, some of the numbers have been extraordinary. Uh, Jamie just alluded to the Singapore bank's earnings season. You saw OCBC's NPLs completely flat year on year for the year that it included the pandemic. 
DBS and UOB barely a, a touch. And okay, not everywhere is Singapore, not everywhere is as prudent and well-run as Singapore, but look to the Philippines where Benjamin Diokno, the central bank governor, proudly launched the new law, the FIST law, they call it, allowing for bad banks to acquire NPAs. You know, a good dynamic thing you do in a crisis to allow people to shift their bad debts away, which is great. But does it actually need it? System-wide bad debts in the Philippine banking system are 3.6%. It was 20 during the Asian financial crisis. So I'm sure you remember. So everything is coming through things much better than you might have expected. But there is a caveat, of course. Now, the moratoria have been coming off without great pain to the banking sector, but they're not completely off. And it is logical that the worst of the debts are the ones that are still under some kind of protection. And this varies around the region. In Malaysia and Indonesia, you, I believe, still have about 20% of loans under some kind of protection. And we're not really going to know the full picture until those roll off. You've seen the uh, Governor of the China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission expecting bad loans to rise this year. The same is true of India, though, as Ira says, it may not prove to be uh, as bad as we might have thought. So we're not out of the woods yet. But I do think the system is coming through this probably in better shape than any of us had any right to expect. Thank you, Chris. I think if I were to um, sort of just summarize the views I heard from all the three of you, I think uh, one is a little bit of surprise that things are much better than what you anticipated with a tinge of caution that there may be some things lurking beneath the surface uh, which might emerge, but a little while down. But overall, seems to be much better than what any of us anticipated, I guess, when we were first hit and we were looking at this situation. So let me then uh, move to something which I think we ourselves have observed accelerating quite dramatically during the crisis, which is the shift both from a consumer point of view, but also from a bank and industry point of view to digital. And in many ways, I think I'm curious to hear from you, how do you see this playing out, Uh, particularly with the rise of fintechs, many places issuing new digital bank licenses? How do you see the digital environment playing out, both from a supply perspective of new players, but also from a perspective of existing banks in terms of their ability to adapt to this changing environment. And this time, maybe I start with uh, you, Jamie, first. So I think it's an interesting point to think about bad debts. If we think about bad debts being low in the system, the question actually is, where did the more vulnerable loans go? And you will see that some of the fintechs have started to take on some of that, which is commonly defined as shadow banking. In part because there continues to be a demand in supply chain financing, where we know that the smallest guy usually gets squeezed. They're often not backed by banks. And that's also why you don't see these relationships pop up on the bank's balance sheets, because they're not banking clients to begin with. So the fintechs have stepped in to fill some of that gap. And you actually see that despite so many calls for banks to support more of the smaller guys, they haven't come quite to an understanding on how they should assess these guys on a running cash flow basis. They're only starting to do this now and to varying degrees of success. So I would say the fintechs have come in to take on that space. Now, how significant would that be? Eventually, these fintechs will have to start partnering the banks and a lot more than before. There probably needs to be some sense of humility from banks that some of these fintechs have been able to crack this, right? But the fintechs also just have a smaller pool to play with. And now the banks have the ability to leverage up 
and use more data analytics and push that across the entire supply chain. Now, why is this significant for digital banks? If we talk about Grab, if we talk about C or any other digital bank that is out there, they are in part capturing some of these flows that the banks didn't want or couldn't figure out how to tap. So the question is, would the banks move fast enough or decide this is worth it? Or will these digital banks come in to fill that gap? And the question then is, how profitable would that be? So these are questions that will be interesting for us to watch. Um, the other question is, of course, if you look at C and you look at Grab, you would see that the market valuation of these guys are at a few multiples of where the traditional banks are. So could having digital banks mean a way to re-rate traditional banks? The problem with traditional banks is that they may want to invest in digital. But for traditional banks, it's seen as a cost. For digital banks, when they do it, it's seen as an investment. Now, on the surface, their set of investors might seem very different. But if everyone is going to invest in some part of tech, perhaps these two investors will start to converge. And if so, then perhaps traditional banks have been held back because of this idea that I can't put cost without having a very clear matrix of return. Now they may be able to reconcile some parts of it. Now, if the two bases of investors are truly separate, then you will find that the premium that some of these guys are holding in the market may continue to be as such because the two investors don't seem to match up. I tend to be a bit more optimistic. Um, I tend to think that the investors have a sense that tech will touch every part of our economy, and that includes banks. And that means if banks don't level up, they're not going to be playing very well. And so I do see some of that differential starting to converge. And that means that the traditional banks actually will be able to become more competitive because they start to realize that the investors are also demanding for this. Asia's standing in the world has changed, and it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. No, thank you, Jamie. I think you point to two or three very interesting elements. One is, I think, the point that uh, there are spaces in the market which you see the new players beginning to occupy. Two, the fact that they seem to have unlimited investment budgets, which continue to be valued well, whereas incumbent banks, when they spend that kind of money, it's seen as cost and returns are expected more immediately than longer term. And number three, I think, just in terms of the pace of adoption, if you may, right to the new, again, you see a little bit of a difference. Chris, would you agree with that? Or would you have a different perspective? Yes, I would agree with that. Um, but I think it's very interesting to look at digital with the, through the prism of COVID and what that did to digital adoption, because through a rather cold matter of survival, it was a great forcing function for digital adoptions. And a lot of Southeast Asian cities, if you want to have any kind of involvement with the financial services system and therefore have electricity and eat, you went digital. You had no choice. And rather shyly, a very large number of bank chief executives or central bank governors will readily admit that COVID did a ton of work for them in forcing people to move across to digital channels. This is on the retail side, but there's elements of it in transactional banking at the corporate level too. Now, the question becomes, does that stick? When we all go back to something like a normal life, does everyone go back to the branches or are they quite happy with their phone? And Actually, if a lot of people have learned convenience through digital banking that they've been forced to do through COVID, they're probably going to stick with it. 
And a number of banks have already proven that it's uh, much better for them from a return on equity perspective to have digitally engaged customers rather than those that tend to want to go through what we might call the analog channels, let's call it going to a branch. Now, all of this is relevant, I think, because if a lot of banks, which are not necessarily digital front runners, have had some work done for them and gained a bigger digital client base, it rather changes their positioning as the fintech onslaught arrives. Because certainly beforehand, I would have assumed that you know the low-hanging fruit was pretty much gone if it hadn't already. You know, Alipay, WeChat, Paytm in India, Grab, Gojek, you know, they were taking the easy stuff and banks had more or less given up on it. But now I wonder if they might actually fight for some of this. And I'm reminded, Jamie will remember this, on December 4th, the night when the Singapore licenses were announced, I just thought this was very, very telling. So this was when Ant and C and Grab got their digital licenses and everything. The very first email I received that night was not from any of them, not Grab, not Ant, not C. It was from DBS. And it said, we congratulate the successful applicants and welcome them to our world where digital banking is already a reality. And there was a message they were trying to get across there saying, yeah, 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 good for you. You've got a license. You can do this. We're already doing it. So the bigger question for me is that there are two, really. One is how much of a battleground it becomes for the transactional stuff, which is simple and which fintech has clearly revolutionized, but some banks are going to want to hang on to. And then the second question is, how far beyond that do we ever go? Are we really going to buy mutual funds through Grab? Or are we going to seek financial advice through Grab? And where does that delineation call? So I'm sort of answering with something of a question, but uh, I'm sure you'd have a view on it yourself, Jordi. So I'll stop there for the moment. No, thank you, Chris. I think it's probably a, a very appropriate question. And I guess we are all searching for the answer to that question <laughs> at some level. I do want to ask Ira one thing, though. You know, Ira, you listened to what Jamie said and Chris said. And India, I think, is there are two very interesting things. One is obviously the impact of COVID and the acceleration of customer adoption, but also the massive spend in digital infrastructure that the government has made over the last two, three years. How is that playing out for many of the new age uh, fintechs? Because one thing which is also interesting to observe a little bit to the point Chris and Jamie were both making is that the incumbent banks seem to be riding on that and moving quite rapidly as well. But how are you seeing this battleground playing out? So I think I'd like to say we'll sort of separate this into two parts, right? There is the transaction part, the payments part, and then there is the digital lending part. And I'll, you know, give you short answers on both. So look, the transaction part is very clear. There has been massive adoption in the last two years. The public payment rails, UPI has led that adoption. Everyone is benefiting from it, whether it's the banks or it's the Google Pays and the phone pays, etc. I still don't see that, though, as something that's eating into the incumbent banks. Because at the back end, there are still banks. You're using UPI, but at the back end, there is a bank. So I don't see Indian banks being particularly sort of perturbed about the fact that there are these third-party applications up front, which are taking uh, the initial part of the traffic because they're still backing a lot of that traffic. So the digital transition on payments, on transactions has continued. Yes, there is battle, but I think the battle is within the fintechs as opposed to between the fintechs and the banks. I think they're growing together. And I think the challenge for banks is almost from themselves as much as it is from these fintechs, because many of them have realized in the last year that their technology, their legacy technology is just not up to speed with the kind of adoption that we have seen. And many of them, as we know, are scrambling to try and 
uh, get that in order. One large bank has faced strictures from the regulator on account of you know outages on the digital front. So you know there is certainly that journey that is continuing. It's speeded up and it's to the benefit of all of us, uh, certainly in terms of ease of transactions. There is a small theme picking up from what Jamie was saying, which is entirely different, which is what happened on the digital lending side. And there I'll link back to what I was saying about banks having done better uh, than expected in this current COVID crisis. But nobody knows how these digital lending platforms have done. And the reason that's important is because they went into the markets that banks didn't want to go into. Uh, They went into the new to credit markets. They used the alternative credit uh, scoring techniques. They tried to build new models for platform-based lending. But these are not public entities. So we don't know how they did. But their experience is actually going to be tremendously relevant. Because if they came out relatively unscathed, you will see start to see the slightly larger non-bank lenders wanting to go into that market and then eventually banks wanting to go into that market. But if they've seen blowouts, and you know we'll know this uh, you know, perhaps when we start to see filings from them in a few months or so, then that will be a pushback to uh, the idea of you know greater financial inclusion or lesser financial exclusion in India. So I think the digital journey to me is two parts in India. Deposits, let's keep out of it because you know deposits remain the preserve of large banks in India. But how digital lending beyond the banks has done is relevant to see in this period. And of course, transactions, payments, there's going to be enormous competition. Nobody's going to make money out of it. They're all going to fight. But that's to our benefit, I suppose. No, thank you. Maybe I have a couple of follow-on questions on that, and I'm not going to direct it to anyone. So you please jump in. (laughs) One, I just want to pick up on something that Jamie said earlier on this, which let me recharacterize as absence of a level playing field, right? Whether it's from an investor lens or a, a regulatory lens. And I think we hear that quite often. How are you, as you talk to regulators, existing players, new players in the market, how are you looking at that evolution, you think there's going to be more convergence, whether it's from a regulatory freedom perspective or from a perspective of how investors look at it, or do you see the divergence continuing? So that's question number one. And the other one, I guess, linked a little bit, Ira, to the last point which you were saying. And we talked a lot about the fintechs, but I, the one category which I'd love to hear your views on are really the tech fins, really the major tech players, including some of the large owners of ecosystems. As they enter into the market, how what's the level of influence you see them exerting in terms of market dynamics? So I'll answer the first question. If we talk about regulators or transparency, essentially, um, I would point to the fact that once Grab is listed as a C, their numbers, their financials, and their successes in financial inclusion will come to be accessed by the market. And I think that's essentially how regulators ensure that there's some kind of level playing field. If, if at all, you know, information today is a great leveler. So the more information that the marketplace has, the better decisions they'll be able to make. Um, I think that's important. And so we'll probably need to scrutinize a lot more of the numbers closely. The second is also to think about where regulators should be in the great scheme of things. So payments, as an example, is a good one. Now, in Singapore, we have a real-time payment system and fintechs have been allowed to tap this system, this railway network, as I like to categorize it. It would be safe to assume that there was probably some lobbying, some pushback from the banks to say, hey, you know, this is not something for the fintechs. But I think regulators ultimately made a decision that payments are a utility. It's ultimately for the benefit of every consumer. It doesn't really matter which pipe goes it goes through, so long as that pipe is safe, 
you know, if you're connected and you're connected right and you don't introduce cybersecurity risk to it, then it should be a utility for everyone. And that is not a remit just for the traditional banks. So I do think that philosophy and that broad mindedness is important in terms of regulations. The other thing is, at what point do regulators step in? I think that's a difficult question. I go back to GFC when people talked about too big to fail. How do you define it? It always comes down to systemic risk. How much risk to the system do you cause? And for fintechs, while they've risen to a certain scale, the question still remains as to how systemically important they are. Now, certainly in other markets, they are critical. So I would say ANT is probably something that is systematically, systemically important today. But some of the fin smaller fintechs, you know, even if unfortunately they collapse, what system risks would there be? So if a supply chain financing firm collapses, but it only takes 0.1% of loans, we have to say that the regulators need to let that go. But if a, but if a company like Ant comes in and they take a significant share, then we have to say that's too big to fail. The problem often is that at what point do you decide they become too big to fail? And unfortunately, regulators are always a little bit more reactive. So I do think that regulators have to take a much closer look. They have to be a lot more sensitive. They have to understand domino effects a lot more than before. And I suspect they'll be asking a lot more questions before than before. And I think fintechs need to be ready for that. Yeah, if I might follow up on Ant Joy Deep, I think we can really learn a lot from the regulatory position in China around the fintechs. Because the way it started out, it was just the perfect environment for a fintech to operate within China. It had absolutely everything going for it. You had a, a market in which ordinary retail had been underserved and somewhat ignored by the big banks. You have a huge and growing population increasing in affluence where people don't have particular concerns about privacy and certainly don't mind transacting through their phone. They're technologically literate. And the regulation in the early days was extremely benign, I think. That's how and stroke Alipay and Tencent stroke WeChat grow so, so big, so, so fast. And then, of course, spread out into other markets, into the back end of uh, Paytm, for example, in India. But the speed and severity of the turnaround and the regulatory position towards Ant and Jack Ma must tell us something. And what does it tell us? I, I think, to my mind, what became clear in the prospectus for the ant listing was just how much of what ant was doing was really getting into the absolute heart of mainstream banking. There was a great deal of lending, but without any of ant's balance sheets on the line. And I think that may even have been a shock to the regulators. And I think there was a recognition that this has a far greater degree of systemic importance than was perhaps previously evident. Everybody loves it when it adds convenience and it brings consumers into the mainstream and all of those are good things. But I think there was a real wake-up moment when they realized you actually have a level of importance to our financial system that we are uncomfortable with. Now, China, of course, marches to its own particular beat. There is really nowhere else that's quite like China. But no matter where you look in Asia, regulators must be trying to make the same calculation, which is what is our trade-off between convenience, customer engagement, and a systemic risk. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I'm going to pick up from both what Jamie and Chris are saying. So in India, we've seen the regulators, at least in the last few years, first take a hands-off approach. You start with payments, for instance. I remember a year and a half back asking someone whether this uh, sort of trend of cashbacks just to get payment value, uh, volumes is something that the regulators would be worried about. And they said, no, it's not uh, putting the system at risk. There's no reason for us to intervene. 
fast forward 18 months, you've started to see uh, NPCI, which is not the regulator, but sort of quasi-regulator, start putting volume caps. So at some point, just as Jamie was saying, they start to realize that there is a systemic risk in the growth of one party and they start to come in. It will be the same in lending as well. So you talked about tech fins, Joy, they, Google Pay, Phone Pay, or any other sort of you know large tech pack player. If they start to move beyond payments, start to say, okay, now we're gonna uh, you know get an NBFC license and we're going to start lending. Just their network will allow them to perhaps scale up very rapidly. That's the point at which you really not need to sort of see uh, uh, what level of regulation comes in. And actually, in India, the regulator has perhaps thought of thought along those lines because they have put in a graded or suggested a graded framework for non-bank lenders, which is based on size exactly that way. So the bottom layer, which is the small companies which don't have large, you know, AUMs, will perhaps be allowed to innovate, and that's great because you do need that innovation, particularly in an economy like India, which is uh, highly credit unpenetrated, underpenetrated even now. But as uh, and if, you know, some of these tech fins start to grow far larger and their, their size in terms of lending capacity grows, then they will be subject to regulation closer and closer to banks. And I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. Just because they are tech fin and they have the potential to bring innovation to the market, I don't think you can sort of sleep off and suddenly wake up one morning to large systemic risk building up, as Jamie said. And that holds true across, you know, payments lending and most definitely deposits, but we haven't opened that up. So I'll leave that out for now. But yes, Techfin will have far more influence in the next uh, few years. Their influence will go beyond payments. I have no doubt about that. And the regulatory approach that will be most interesting, although I think they're preparing uh, for that in some ways. Thank you. Thank you, Ira. That was great. And in fact, maybe I'll, I'll also end like we did the last question with a question, which is whether, whether you see, as uh, Chris was saying, that the all the regulators in the region will adopt the Chinese playbook or not from a regulatory perspective to be seen, right? But <laughs> to be to be seen. Let me. While uh, you also touched upon innovation, Ira, and I and I do want to talk about a couple of things which have more recently accelerated, right, in the post-COVID world. One is obviously blockchain as a technology, and the notion of cryptocurrency. I mean, everyone's kind of watching with amazement the price of bitcoins and there are lots of regulators have been ambivalent in the past in some places they're being much more supportive so it looks like things are in a bit of a flux what what are you seeing and hearing on, on this damage so i think you know on the blockchain part and you know separating blockchain technology i have to say that i don't have too much to say i do know that indian banks have been experimenting there was a consortium of banks that had come together and the areas are similar to what's happening across Asia. Perhaps uh, it's on trade finance, it's on overseas payments. I know that there were experiments going on. I don't know that they've reached any uh, level of scale where they've gone to market in a big way. Uh, so perhaps that's still work in progress. I think everyone will accept that there is large potential there. Uh, has that potential fructified? I frankly don't know that it has because it hasn't come to market in a big way. In terms of cryptocurrencies, again, you know, India is a unique market. Banks have had trepidation in dealing with the broader cryptocurrency universe because of regulations and the back and forth on regulation. So perhaps I'll let uh, Jamie and Chris pick up more on that conversation, a little bit more, I guess, coming in from other parts of Asia than from India. Sure. Well, if I can address the blockchain side, I agree with Ira that I think trade finance and payments, particularly cross-border payments, were probably the two areas where blockchain appeared to have the 
greatest potential. But I think between them, they also illustrate both the opportunities and the difficulties that are involved with blockchain technology. I mean, both appear to fit perfectly well. Cross-border payments is just fiddly and expensive and it's unduly complicated and partly because that's about concerns about fraud and AML that appears to be custom made for blockchain. You can sort all of those things out with a common distributed ledger. And I think that's beginning to happen. You saw just last week, uh, JP Morgan decided to use a specific Asian corridor. Actually, the remittances from Taiwan to Indonesia is the one that they chose as, as a proving ground of some of its blockchain-enabled tools for cross-border payments, for identity verification, and so forth. And this is not really proof of concept. They've gone beyond that now. This is actually launched as a supposedly commercially viable solution. And we'll see how it flies, and hopefully it will go bigger from there. So global payments, to my mind, cross-border payments, is the, is the one area where you can say this really, really should work. Now, trade finance, on the face of it, perfect if anything ever needed disruption, it's trade finance. The only reason anyone on earth still owns a fax machine is because trade finance is so incredibly antiquated and disjointed and has all of these moving parts and documents have to be stamped. Distributed ledgers should fix that right away, shouldn't it? But the problem is, I think what a lot of people who are trying to do that have learned is that there are just so many people who need to coordinate simultaneously. It's not like global payments where it's really you know, who's sending it, who's receiving it, and some regulator as well. You've got customs, agents, shipping forwarders, governments, quality certifiers. And it's not just the tech. That's the other problem with trade finance. It's the legal side. You know, what happens if my good does not arrive in the form that it was supposed to? That's not actually a tech question. The tech is fine conceptually. But real life rather gets in the way. And that's the one problem with a distributed ledger technology is you do need everybody to get on board at the same time. And you've kind of reached the point where the tech is proven, but that's no longer the point. So that, I think, is the next step, as it always is with these things, is just gaining scale, gaining momentum, getting enough people to agree. That's, that's the challenge now. I would add two points to that. Definitely, trade finance needs to grow up and reach the modern age that we're in. Uh, there are two parts to this. The point about the legal side needing to become digital is a real problem. Simple things like digital signatures are not necessarily accepted in different parts of the world, and different parts of the world have different standards for what a digital signature should be. And just that alone hinders the process. The other part is that actually there are different blockchain systems. And when you put a bunch of very competitive people together in the same room, of course, here I'm referring to banks, they will try and lobby and push for their system, which they will claim is better than the other system. And these systems all have to speak to one another. And so fundamentally, I think that is a problem. The term is cooperation, where you have to figure out that it makes better sense for you to cooperate even with a competitor and then you know, take a larger pie together rather than fighting over whether system A is better or system B. And so I think there's been some conversation and some pause because of that. Um, I think it fundamentally boils down to this. I think blockchain is there to actually bring trusted partners together while taking away some part of that competition that has hindered them from working more closely together. And some parts of that is still being worked out. So it's not a tech issue, it's a people issue. And we need to come to terms with that so blockchain can finally flourish and be set free. Thank you, Jamie. I think your last statement is really always rings true. Most things about tech are not tech issues, they're people issues. Right? So <laughs> let's move to the last question before um, we wrap up this fascinating conversation. 
And I want to come back to one macro trend, which we have seen always uh, during financial crisis, which is mergers and acquisitions and divestments. And if you look back over the years, every time there's been an economic crisis, we've seen mergers both in terms of number of deals as well as the size of deals go up at least two times more than normal times. How do you see the M&A environment shaping up in the markets here? Ira, maybe let me start with you. Okay, uh, I think the exciting part on potential M&A here is if the Indian government opens up some of its banks to privatization. I think that's what we are all watching for. There's talk that potentially they could put up two uh, banks first, and if that succeeds, uh, they may consider more. Uh, That's where the M&A excitement, I think, in India will come from. There will be interest potentially from people who may not have been allowed into the banking sector so far, and I refer to large corporate entities, but that is subject to the Reserve Bank of India permitting them to come in. So I think that's where the anticipation is. Whether it happens or not, there are many, many steps uh, between regulatory changes required and then the government deciding on banks and going ahead with privatization. Outside of the government uh, banking sector, though, I think Indian M&A has always been driven by stress. We've seen in the last 12, a little more than 12 months, uh, two such deals. One wasn't really M&A, but uh, you know, there was uh, the resolution of Yes Bank, and there was a much smaller bank called Luxury Milas Bank, which was merged with DBS. But it's always been a distressed M&A story. We've seen very few deals in Indian banks, which are just two banks saying, hey, we can do this together and we're going to do this better. I don't know that that will change even now. I still think that it's going to be a story of either distress or a government uh, sellout story. And the second, if it happens, is going to be is going to be of great, great interest, something new to report about. So we're looking forward to that. It hasn't happened yet. So I can jump in quickly on that. I would say over in Asia, broadly, we see City deciding to exit several markets here. So the question is whether some of these assets will come to play. Um, speaking from the Singapore Bank's perspective, I assume they would take a look at it. But with M&A, the question about the global financial crisis still comes to mind, which is that you can't be all things to everyone. And City's latest decisions suggest this as well. But that also means that for the banks that want to acquire, they will ask, is this the right fit? We're not going to do this just to thump our chests and say we've got the money to do it. They will be careful. They will ask if there's a cultural fit and a tech fit, um, especially because the tech pipes have to fit a lot better than before. And they know investors will punish poor M&A choices if the returns are poor. So this is the environment that they're working with. I think while M&A looks attractive on paper, there's a lot more caution than, say, 10 years before. So unless these assets are easily tacked on, you know, where it's a matter of just taking on some assets and the liabilities are uh, easy to deal with, otherwise, I think they'll, they'll take a second, third, even fourth look before they make decisions on that. Yeah, Jamie's right. Cities is very interesting to look at, and they do intend to sell a lot of those businesses. They're not just closing them down. And some of them are very good. You know, Cities Taiwan operation works perfectly well as an institution in its own right. But if you look at the potential buyers of those things, there's a couple of trends you can identify. Who might they be? Japanese banks are a possibility. You've seen MUFG uh, expand into the region over the years by acquiring local businesses. And they've done that, of course, because there is just zero growth in Japan, certainly in anything around consumer, and therefore exposing yourself to higher growth. Asian markets makes a great deal more sense. MUFG's already done it to a degree, but SMBC, Mizuho, that's a possibility. I think the role of private equity is very interesting. 
again, in Japan, that has been a, a major force for buying uh, financial as well as industrial assets. So could we see private equity step in by an individual constituent business of city and then try and flip it again at some point in a rather more uh, normal economic environment? In Taiwan itself, that could be a scale play. You could see someone wanting to buy Taiwan's operations and uh, merge it into well, any of the major houses there. And it would be really interesting to see if anybody goes for their ASEAN businesses, minus Singapore, because Singapore's not on the block, and uh, try and buy all of that en masse. I mean, could that make sense for an OCBC or a UOB? One wonders because in some ways, those sorts of acquisitions have gone out of fashion in the last five years. This idea of having to buy scale and bricks and mortar, it kind of takes you back to the point where you know, Piyush Gupta often talks about the fact that the fact that he wasn't able to buy a bank in Korea was actually one of the best things that happened to him because it would have been the wrong sort of deal. It was out of step with the time. It was better not to buy bricks and mortar and a huge institution, but instead to buy digital capabilities. So maybe M&A in the future in the banking sector will be characterized not so much by buying other banks, but buying uh, technological capability. Yeah, I'll briefly add the India city uh, part. And I think here the question is whether uh, the portfolio will be sold in bits and pieces. Early interest seems to be mostly in their credit card book more than anything else. But yes, there have been large full buyouts talked about, but certainly the credit card portfolio would be of interest to a number of Indian banks uh, who are looking to grow and uh, take dominance in that market. No, thank you. Thank you, Ira. Thank you, Chris. Uh, you know, I, we are almost at the end. And maybe I'll I'll start with the end, which is really, I think, on this point on m and I do, I do think that the point Chris makes is very interesting, is that are we going to see a different type of an m and era, which is not just the more classical merger of banks, but also maybe banks with fintechs and banks with uh, technology companies, given, given the way banking is evolving, do we see a different type of uh, m and era? I think that's an interesting question, which will play out. Uh, over the next few years. I would also say that linked into this notion of how are banks doing, I think we all were quite pleasantly surprised by the degree of resilience and the more optimistic outlook. At the same time, I think Jamie made one point which I registered, which is I think there is a social contract. There is a lot of government spending which has happened, which has also supported many of the businesses which have indirectly benefited the bank. And I think there is a broader question around banking for good for society. And I do think that's a debate which is certainly on the table in terms of what are banks doing beyond just the profit motive in terms of the social obligations. And I think the third element is really the evergreen debate between fintechs and banks and the technology. What is clear is that customers have moved on, right? And in many ways, COVID has been a real accelerant to adoption. For customers, the question is, Will the existing financial institutions keep pace or will, and the regulators, how will they deal with an evolving landscape between new banks and existing banks? And in reality, there may eventually be a mix, right, which we all will uh, learn to deal with. Let me end there by firstly thanking uh, the three of you for giving me the opportunity to interview you. I really like this. I think this is what I should be doing more often rather than responding to your questions. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So, Ira, Chris, and Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today and very much look forward to continuing our dialogue. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey 
our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash Future of Asia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.